This week on the Adaptation Game, we would like to issue an apology for the scandalous nature of the content of this episode. We would like to say that the views expressed are not the opinions of the the guys that, you know, the thing that they say on the other show. Just play the theme song. gentlemen to the adaptation game the show where a couple of idiots without a useful thing rolling around in their dumb heads decide to adapt various media properties into other forms i am your host mr matthew shot and with me as always is my intrepid co-host mr chris sokawa hey all right johnny just swing through swing through that pitch buddy Chris uh, has been landed on some hard times uh, financially, so he has to double up his recording time with his little league coach time. Uh, so bear with us as he's going through this financial transition period. Uh, I think that that intro probably clued you into everything you need to know about this week's episode. That was extremely informative and informational, but just in case... This week, Chris and I are taking on a interesting topic. Uh, sometimes Chris comes to me with with just a word, just just a single thought, and from that inspiration blooms. And this is one of those times where Chris presented to me that he wanted to adapt scandals. Now, what does that mean exactly? I asked for no clarification. So uh, how Chris and I have interpreted that word could be very different, but we decided to adapt (laughs) scandals in large quotation marks, whatever we interpret scandals to be, into (laughs) straight play stage adaptations. So uh, again, we we were pretty loosey-goosey and vague on what exactly that could mean as well. So there's a there's a good chance that Chris and I actually cover a lot of the same territory here, or at least float around some similar ideas. I don't know what's going to happen. This is very exciting for me because there's a lot of vagueness mm-hmm. in this ambiguity whole episode. Yeah, this episode is all about ambiguity. So, Chris, let me just ask you straight out, what? Did you mean when you said scandals? Were you talking about the television series scandal? I was not, but of course, I mean that that series, that wonderful series, is is inextricable from the idea of scandal, uh, thanks to um, uh, Shondaland's marketing of it. But uh, when I was thinking of scandals, um, I was thinking of social sort of outbursts with tremendous consequence for an individual or a small group of people, um, if that makes sense. Um, Does that make sense? I think so. Um, Now, if if I may, if I may play um, uh, our adaptation game documentarian card, uh, scandals are, according to the dictionary, uh, 
an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. Mm-hmm. So that that is pretty broad. That could be many, many different things when looked at from that perspective. And uh, as a little piece of background information for the for the audience, uh, every week when Chris and I record, we change our backgrounds to uh, on on Skype where we record to be an image associated with that week's topic. And it has just dawned on me through the context clues of, of Chris's background that I think uh, there may be some very interesting uh, uh, bits of synchronicity here. Um, we're going we're gonna to break adaptation game rules all around. And I'm just going to ask you straight up, Chris, did you do a David Mamet play for your adaptation that i did matthew interesting um now i will not reveal why that is interesting until i get to my pitch so that i can leave both chris and you the audience in suspense but it's all gonna come full circle in a very interesting way this is turning into one of our most scandalous episodes oh my my so i am deeply excited oh wow Uh, yeah, I, I will. I'll just let that hang in the air like a pinter pause, and no, that's not a clue. Although I did think <laughs> about doing pinter. Um. So, so Chris, let's talk a little about scandals. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, this is normally we'd sort of do the historical section, but again, this is kind of one of those episodes where that's a little tricky. So, uh, Chris, what's your favorite scandal? What's a scandal that you like and enjoy in in the broad sense of human history? Well, I certainly enjoy the scandals we are living through currently. I really enjoy those and look forward to those dramatizations, and we'll leave that where it lay. But uh, scandals of the past... Well, I'll talk a brief moment about why I thought Scandal to stage play was an appropriate process, because I thought back to the restoration era of theater in England, um, and this is uh, during or briefly after the Protestant Reformation of England. And so it was just this explosion of culture and and sauciness and and what the French would call frisson. Um, and, uh, Simon Callow does a wonderful, uh, he writes a lot about it, actually the history of it and the application of it in the theater. And he is potentially most known by folks as the grasshopper from James and the giant peach. Uh, but, uh, so uh, restoration theater though, central to it was airing people's dirty laundry. It was so central to the, uh, performance medium. It was not always very flashy. Sure. They had clothes that were donated by the aristocracy. That was their costuming and their theaters, excuse me, a lot of times because of the Protestant Reformation, you know, burning or closing down or, or repurposing theaters, they had to perform on tennis courts and they were performing to audiences on both sides. You know, they didn't have as much sets. You know, it was the settings were, were current. Um, it was almost closer to what we might see of an SNL or a um, like a daily show, something that has commentary on personal and public life. Um, and that's actually where the period where we get um, or at least where uh, 
you know, the box seats became very prominent is because the lords and ladies would sit in these seats and they would actually be sort of the source of entertainment to the audience and they'd be written in by the performers. These different scandals would be aired for everyone and it was delicious and it was frisson. And so I thought, well, what would that look like modern day outside of, you know, we do political dramas and political scandals um, on stage occasionally like uh, Frost Nixon, et cetera. But um, for me, all of that uh, preamble aside, um, what's my favorite scandal? My favorite scandal, honestly, I've been really into the Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles sort of uh, tampon gate and these different um, dalliances those two had in broad daylight while he was married to uh, Princess Diana um, because it's so tragic. So that's an important part to me of a scandal. It's embarrassing, another juicy, important part of a scandal. And then thirdly, it had vast and far-reaching consequences, uh, which I think is the ideal result of a scandal. Uh, you know, we're thinking other, you know, uh, contenders are the Monica Lewinsky scandal that had far-reaching consequences. Of course, uh, Watergate, far-reaching consequences, uh, uh, Tiger Woods um, you know, uh, his dalliances and those consequences and how it reformed the power structures within the PGA. Um, these are the kind of scandals that I find delicious. And I hope that I'm able to spin my, uh, sort of lesser known scandal up to tonight. So I think that that's, uh, that you make a good point there that, um, what we're doing tonight, uh, in creating a work of stage, uh, craft, from a sort of famous scandal is something that there's a long and rich historical tradition for. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking of the same thing. As soon as this was brought up, I was immediately like, okay, we got, you're like Frost Nixon. Uh, there was that play that was like two years ago or last year where like John Lithgow was Bill Clinton, whatever that was. Yeah. It's um, called you Bill know, and Hillary or something. Yeah. Something like that. Um, but there's like, there's, there's, that's always going on. And I actually think that in the Trump era, we're sort of getting to a point where that at least in on like the U S political scale is getting harder and harder to do. I think that the Trump administration and Donald Trump as a human being in general are kind of beyond parody because they're so like, they're so cartoonishly incompetent and corrupt that they sort of defy the ability to accurately satirize. You know, in order to sort of satirize, you have to kind of heighten certain elements in order to create this kind of uh, funhouse mirror effect. But with somebody like Donald Trump, with characters like Rudy Giuliani, there's not really that much you can do that would be stranger than just who they are. I mean, we saw Rudy Giuliani melt on live television. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why Saturday Night Live is, I mean, Saturday Night Live is, is always pretty toothless in general. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, think one of the reasons. network comedy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons why uh, it's, it's felt like, especially like, and not really having anything to say, <laughs> um, in the past, like four years, with with Donald Trump and like Alec Baldwin and all that, is because it's like, what can you do? Um, this isn't necessarily on stage, but uh, just recently there was that Showtime miniseries about uh, James Comey, Comey, the Comey yeah. rule, and I watched it because I was just really curious as to like how they could take 
um, you know, the the Trump administration and try to make it this like almost like Sorkin, you know, political yeah. drama. How would they give and it that dignity? I think there's kind of there's kind of two ways you can go with it where you can like try to you can go like the Saturday Night Live route where you just like, you know, you you add so much like cartoon fluff to a man who is already cartoonish that it all just like becomes this like meaningless like white noise or you can kind of scale it back and try to play it more realistic where to the point where it feels a little disingenuous and yeah. that is what the Comey rule tries to do um what's his face Brendan, Brendan Gleeson yeah Brendan Gleeson he plays um he kind plays Donald Trump. Donald Trump he plays yeah I mean it, it, there's a couple of things about his performance that are really interesting like he he gets the breathing down perfectly he's a really heavy breather in the Ooh. whole miniseries yeah and like that's like right on point but for the most yeah. part he's like like whenever you see him on TV you're like that's not what Donald Trump's like on TV yeah um, and it feels just like disingenuous okay um, and uh, <laughs> yeah no it's 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 none of like that stuff you know because okay. if you did that stuff or like his face isn't like as orange as it is in real life because like if you did that stuff you'd be like this is this is a cartoon this, this is isn't a, a real person this didn't but happen but that's what he is you know so like and maybe this is just all be- also because like we're still experiencing that story you know so it's it's hard to like have any perspective on it when we're like in the thick of it um even like you know even though the 2016 election was 4 years ago we're still in the you know aftermath of that experience so that story is still going and we don't we still can't like you know look back on this era and um I, so and I think, maybe oh sorry i was just going to say with time that might that might change but i think for the most part uh I, you know and and for a multitude of other reasons irony and satire are just kind of like dead as concepts. Yeah, I think time, but I think a missing piece right now is retribution. Whether it be an exoneration, which we've realized is not possible. Um, and so what we have left on our hands is a sort of retribution. What will happen in the years subsequent to this White House? How will Donald even be removed from the White House? Will he be physically pulled from the White House? These are all questions that are still floating around. And so we don't have our final chapter to even this section of the book. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting in years to come. I remember talking to Kierna early on in this presidency and being like, this is going to be a genre of political drama. This is going to be a genre of biopics and so, like, like McElhen, McElhen, whatever that liar's name is, the Kara McEnany, McEnany. She could have a whole mini series about what her job is like, how she translates the stuff going on there and how fiercely she doubles down with these sort of uh, xenophobic lies that she's always spouting. You know, mm-hmm. you could have a Spicer do- uh, documentary or biopic. You could have a Giuliani biopic for sure. The thing is, though, yeah, I agree that what's unique about this political situation, and again, I think it's whilst people shy away from the topic at, the, at these days, I think it's really the only appropriate and most prescient element for two Americans to be discussing living in New York is, you know, this this uh, this administration is both unsat unsatirizable because they are so absurd. Uh, and at the same time, you can't sorkinize them because they have no dignity or scruples to be seen. 
No, I mean, these sort of, you know, a lot smarter people than me have sort of deconstructed the uh, the the West Wing and the sort of Sorkin neoliberal idea of politics being this like game that you can successfully kind of play and, you know, change things incrementally. People have already deconstructed why that's just like, you know, a fantasy, that a nice fantasy to live in, but just one that doesn't sort of re- reflect our reality. But uh, in addition to that, I think also the kind of culture that surrounds, you know, Donald Trump and and the alt right is is one that is impervious to irony and satire because so many of them were born from, you know, sort of ironic uh, uh, bigotry that sort of just morphed into real life bigotry. You know, so much of that culture is around this kind of like nihilistic, like, you know, I don't care about anything. Everything is ironic to the point where, you know, it's like now I'm just, you know, a literal Nazi. Um, That like, we just don't really have the same tools we used to. And I think we as a culture are still adapting as to like, okay, so what do we do now? Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people are responding by being genuine. You know, I mean, look at like the, the perfect microcosm of that is like, look at Borat and Borat 2 and, you know, the stark difference and like how those movies kind of like, you know, addressed the political climates in which mm-hmm. they were made. Um, we're just w- going wildly out into the stratosphere right now. So I'm going to reel us back in. Uh, from this just overall uh, discussion about satire and irony. Um, But I think that um, when we're talking about scandals, the kind of scandals that really get my goose are (laughs) the kind of scandals that uh, are kind of low stakes and involve like a lot of schadenfreude. Like, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, listeners of the show will know that I am – a fan of the uh, video games. And um, I uh, I love when there's like a big budget, big hyped release that is just like an absolute disaster. <laughs> I think I know where um, this is going. <laughs> well, we're living, we are living through one right now, which is, which makes this very timely with the cyberpunk 2077 um, and the sort of sheen of, uh, of, you know, uh, imperviousness that was glossed over uh, CD Projekt Red kind of falling apart, which is good because they do practice crunch and, um, you know, no company is perfect um, and they should be uh, scrutinized. But, um, you know, the the biggest one before this was like Fallout 76 and like just Bethesda's like amazing just string of like fuck up after fuck up after fuck up and just like all of these like public embarrassments you just love to see it you know you just like more and more just bad news coming out and you're just like oh yeah Mm. this is so fun um you know it's 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 low stakes and it's embarrassing for big companies uh and i like those elements of it i don't like that the people responsible for those mistakes are pretty much um, never dealt any sort of retribution and it's like the workers that suffer. But uh, one day, my friends, revolution will come. So um, I think that's a pretty good overview of scandals and uh, lots of other topics. This is like our most serious episode. We've really just like dug into the shit, um, which they is- They walk a line. They walk a line. The scandal can be funny. It could be very disastrous. 
you know, I don't think people really know what to expect with this show. And I like, I like to keep them on their toes. You know, some weeks we're, we're, we're just all about the goof em ups. And then some weeks it's like, okay, let's talk politics and let's get serious. Uh, so that's nice. You know, give, give a little, uh, keep, keep them guessing. It's great. So I think without further ado, I, I just, I'm itching to get into the pitch zone this week because <laughs> I've got. Pitching. I'm itching for some pitching because I have got to know what yours is because this is going to be a historic episode. I think this is going to be an episode where our pitches accidentally complement each other in a really interesting way. Oh, my goodness. And I am very excited about it. So... Uh, now, let me just remind the audience that Chris and I have no idea what each other's pitches are no. other than uh, I now know Chris's revolves around David Mamet. So other than that, we have no idea what's going to happen next. So let's dive into the pitch zone right now with the uh, bop and fresh pitch zone theme. Hit it. It's pitch time. It's pitch time. Everybody get your pitches. It's time to pitch time. Mmm, that's a good pitch zone theme. I love the way that sounds in my bones. So bone sounds. <laughs> bone sounds, um, which is if that's not the name of a band, it's a great name. If it's not the name of like a serious drama, also pretty good. So here we are. We've stepped out of the blank void that is mostly kitchen-esque of the uh, Adaptation Lounge and stepped into the even blanker void that is the Pitch Zone. And first up, as per tradition, on the pitcher's mound is the most handsome man to walk the face of the earth, Mr. Chris Okawa. Chris, batter up. Oh, now I have to sound handsome. Um, so tonight, uh, I want to set the ground rules a little bit. Uh, my is, of course, as alluded to uh, by Matthew, a David Mamet play. Uh, it's a David Mamet play called Life with Robbie. Um, and it's going to tell us a story about a, a very uh, well-intentioned um, but misguided, ultimately, man. And I think that Mamet's the man to tell us that with Plenty of good swears, of course, um, which we will omit uh, some of the the harder ones. Um, just I'll just explain them to you, you know, like how swears are meant to be experienced. Um, but for me, what stuck out, what made Mamet um, important to tell my story is actually like the the weight of his uh, conversations, the lewdness of some of the in- imagery that he paints in his uh, in his plays um, and the bureaucratic sort of uh, mishmash and, and, and the bungling um, that uh, occurs or you see uh, occur uh, off and on in such, uh, you know, projects like, of course, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross uh, and his Faustus, which we'll allude to near the end. So, uh, so I wanted first, uh, next, I want to tell you, um, a little bit about a man named Dr. Robert Liston. Now, Dr. Robert Liston was a surgeon who lived in 1794, ex Scotland. Um, and he was a surgeon that specialized and in this order, first speed, second amputation accuracy. So he lived in an era where there was no anesthesia for these things. And we're not even talking master and commander bite on this like wood thing and here have a, a dram of rum. He was sawing people. He was chopping. He was butchering people. Basically, it was the medicine of the time. People 
it, 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 he, he, time was his king. Time was his master. Um, and, and most speed surgeons, which apparently, unfortunately, is a genre in this time period, there's surgeons that, spe- again, specialize first in speed and second in accuracy. Most of them would lose <laughs> one in four patients, either to blood loss, infection. Um, they would lose them to a variety of missing you know, and uh, Liston was became very prominent in this time because he lost only one in 10 patients to his very speedy methods. And he did not sacrifice a second of time. There is another British surgeon that uh, sang his praises, uh, Dr. Richard Gordon, who would be another primary character in my play. And he would vouch, he would go on to say that Liston could perform a leg amputation in two and a half minutes. And he had at least one time seen him do it in 28 seconds, um, it, which is a, a bizarre. He paints the picture in this one account, uh, which I would try and honor in a mammatarian mamata- style. Uh, this is from the writings of uh, Dr. Gordon. He was six foot two and operated in a bottle green coat with Wellington boots. All right. This guy is expecting to get wet. He sprung across the blood-stained boards upon his swooning, sweating, strapped-down patient like a duelist, calling, time me, gentlemen, time me, to students craning with pocket watches. Now, that phrase, time me, gentlemen, time me, is used in all of the readings I've done, and I read actually multiple sources to to tell this tale accurately, Uh, to students craning with pocket watches from the iron-railed galleries. Everyone wore, swore that the first flash of his knife was followed so swiftly by the rasp of saw on bone that sight and sound seemed simultaneous. To free both hands, he would clasp the bloody knife between his teeth. So um, before we go too far down the river on this man is a savage, he actually was one of the few that washed his hands and his instruments in between surgeries. There's another injury, uh, image that is uh, painted by an, another uh, writer from the time. It said, in those days, surgeons operated in blood-stiffened frock coats. The stiffer the coat, the prouder the busy surgeon. Pus was an inseparable, as inseparable from surgery as blood, and cleanliness was next to prudishness. So this man, whilst he was quick, whilst he was very celebrated and a bit of a showman, uh, which we'll get around to in a sec here, which ended up being the, the cause of his scandal. Um, he, uh, he was very cleanly and he was ahead of his time. And he ended up being one of the first surgeons to accurately and safely operate using anesthesia near the end of his short life. He died at the age of 54 of an aneurysm. Um, so I'll just list off a few casualties and complications that arose throughout his career. These all increasing in gravity until we get to the day in question with a uh, 300% mortality rate in one surgery, which is a record he still lone holds uh, in medical lore. So casualties that resulted from this man's, he would pack galleries as alluded to in the, in the uh, account uh, with, with men, women, children, uh, medical students and people cheering, vomiting from the images they were seeing, the patients being strapped down with leather and with hands. It's complete, you know, by today's standards, barbarism and and miraculous that he was even able to have such a successful career in that environment. But casualties that are uh, that are you know sort of bloomed out of this sort of albeit reckless medical practice that he ran uh, a speed amputation. Um, was so triumphant with a final sl- slice that he parted his patient with his ball sack. Um, 
he, which is like, how long was this song? You know what I mean? <laughs> was this like a tree song? Was this like, a, we're looking at two and a half feet of saw? Because you're, you're working God. on a femur for a while, right? And then it, you just, it's one stroke. It's not, it doesn't sound like a medical saw, which the Liston saw that he invented is actually still used in surgery as a fun fact. He's a very influential man. So that's one of the more unfortunate ones. Just like a final flourish for his audience. And then as everything is being cleaned up, he's realizing there's some extra um, goodie bags left on the table. <laughs> um, the, the, he also, patients were not deterred by this first incident. They were not de uh, derided by this uh particularly they would wait for days in his waiting room just in the hopes of being seen by this very gifted and speedy man speed was king at this moment in time of the medical uh, profession of, of amputation and so then there was another time where he was working on a young man he did a bonus trim just as part of a flourish a theatrical move uh, and he uh, he thought he was trimming a, a skin tag from the patient's neck it was a it was a cardioid arterial aneurysm and the patient uh, basically their neck turned into a like a fire hose of their blood and they died very quickly. Um, but the real uh, PS de resistance, the real panache of our tale of life with Robbie, ironically titled, um, is a, a particular leg amputation. Um, so he has these galleries packed with people. It's one of his biggest crowds yet. Uh, this is later in his career. Uh, there's a roaring crowd, uh, you know, just like it's it was more of a stadium. He turned the operating theater into a stadium. And so in one swift initial chop while the while his assistant is is sort of uh, keeping his unanesthetized patient's legs still, um, he he just like he severs two of his assistants uh, fingers commingling the blood of his patient with the with the blood of his assistant uh, instantaneously, and then in his as he pulls back from that with a flourish because I'm sure this man was in some sort of trance or was on cocaine or some I don't know what but he he the the anecdote goes he drew his knife back and he sharply sliced the coattails of a nearby spectator who had leaned in to see better and that spectator ends up dying of fright before he hits the ground this according to multiple <laughs> accounts. Uh, of a heart attack. Now, both the patient and the assistant very shortly thereafter die of gangrene. One account says sepsis for this for the patient more specifically, uh, and giving him a 300% mortality rate on this particular singular simple surgery. Uh, now simple. I don't I don't want to demean the man's uh, work. Um, so this is where the mammoth piece really shines to me is actually the fall of this person. Uh, we watch the disillusion of this man's career. We watch uh, you know, uh, a la, you know, Mammoth's Faustus. We watch the bureaucratic mismanagement and the uh, professional professional rivalries and greasing of palms and backstabbing that we see in Glengarry. Um, lots of swears. You know, I grew up watching, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up watching. Uh, I saw the Patriot. And I saw Master and Commander. These amputation scenes are tame. They're tame. This person's leg is getting like, sawn off and the bone broken and they're like oh my stars and garters you know what I mean like we mm. want the C word we want them to, to say terrible things about the doctor because you would I had a friend who um, was on a hike with a fellow friend and, and that friend got a teddy bear cactus in their leg 
Now, the teddy bear cactus uh, is uh, known as such. It's kind of a magnetic cactus. I don't know how they work, but if you get close enough to them, we grew up in Arizona, they static sort of to your body and uh, the spines will hook into your muscles, into your musculature to protect the overall plant. And so we had a friend that was trying to pry this out of our other friend. And the friend, he he described the scene as a sort of a... Um, and uh, an oscillation between like, please, please help me, help me. And then like, OK, I'm going to go in and do it. And as the friend started pulling at it and trying to uh, remove the cactus, the other friend would be like, oh, fuck you. Oh, fuck your mother. Oh, you know, basically like poltergeist, <laughs> the girl on poltergeist. So I want that kind of language to be yeah, flowing mean throughout. Ex- exorcist? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. The exorcist. Yeah. Poltergeist is like just this house is clean. Yeah. Exorcist. Uh, just terrible things that stick with you. I, and I think that Mammoth really is the only one appropriate uh, and illustrious enough to weave those uh, profanity laden uh, lines for me. Um, and uh, so Liston, he goes on after this to be one of the first, again, first successful uh, in anesthesia surgeons um, before his life is cut short by an aneurysm, potentially from stress, potentially from these different, you know, maybe he was on a lot of drugs while he's doing this stuff. It's really probably takes a lot of courage to do what he did, or at least a lot of recklessness. Um, and uh, he, but the legacy of this particular ma- uh, massacre follows him in the papers. It fo- you know, it 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 colors his practice. It's always a but sort of. Uh, a uh, byline to all of his subsequent success uh, and it follows him until his death. And to me, that's what makes a really juicy and uh, lasting um, scandal. And it's something that we still talk about today. And there's a lot of, I think also there's a lot of colloquial elements to this particular scandal. There's different accounts, excuse me. Some of them contradict each other. Some of them uh, embellish uh, it was an era known for its embellishment in public uh, in publicity and in in uh, in otherwise reputable uh, journals and whatnot. Um, of course, we still have you know um, very licentious sort of publications now, but we call them you know like People Magazine or Fox News. Um, so <clears throat> he. Uh, was just derided for the rest of his career. Um, and as much as he tried to, you know, uh, sort of climb his way out of that hole, um, he was always known as that guy who had a 300%, um, you know, uh, fatality, uh, uh, you know, uh, rating in, in the operating room that one day. So uh, some selling points of this, lastly, are stagecraft. This is ready for Broadway because we're ready to make it messy. We're ready to show people some real onstage magic. We're ready to really like make things either moments that are otherwise very uh, tense, funny, um, or really dig into the gore of it all. There's the swears. There's the interpersonal drama. Maybe we give Liston a contentious home life. Maybe we uh, give him a, a, a young apprentice that sort of um, undermines him and, and betrays him to the press. Um, we have uh, the C word I have written here um, for some reason. I guess we'll we'll use that. That'll be used a couple times. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to put a sign up in the lobby. There's so many swears. I wouldn't mind that one bit. Um, and then lastly, you know, it functions as a beautiful character study because, again, even over the course of this one pitch, as someone who's read uh, quite a bit about uh, Robert Liston uh, in preparation for the pitch, I don't really know this man's perfect motivations. I don't know what was going on in his head. I don't know why he... Um, 
sort of pushed himself to this limit. And also, I don't know what the psychological toll of being such a accidentally murderous um, sort of uh, surgical showman. Uh, I don't know what the co- the cost of that is. And that's up to the actor. So I think it's very attractive to actors. I think you could get, you know, uh, Brian Cranston. I think you could get uh, a Killian Murphy. I think you could get um, a lot of really great um, actors to uh, sort of don um, the garment and, and, uh, and roll up their sleeves and take on the, the meaty role of Liston. So, uh, uh, what do we uh, think of that? If, if I may, uh, this is Baird McGregor from the, uh, <laughs> Scottish Affairs Department. Uh, I'd just like to say, I think that we should get a, a, a Scotsman in there to, uh, be playing this part. If you're going to be doing a play about this famous Scotsman, you got to have a Scottish man playing the part. That's very fair. Uh, that's very fair. I was thinking as a fallback, uh, what would you th- think of Lee Pace? Is, is, is Lee Pace Scottish enough or is that not? Lee is that a Pace is Scottish enough. I want to, Someone out there who's really <laughs> Scottish, like us all, like us good Scotsman here in Edinburgh. Uh, well, let me look this up in real time. Uh, did you know that James McAvoy is, is a Scotsman? Is that hey, a Hey, James McAvoy is a good Scottish boy. I think he'd be doing a good job there up on the stage. Wonderful, wonderful. Let's go with James McAvoy, and I appreciate your input as ever, and uh, I'll be asking uh, security as to how you got in here. I'm very interested hey, about that. Hey, go where I want your wee baby men cannot stop Baird McGregor from getting into the room. Uh, thank you, Baird, for yeah. uh, that uh, uh, insight. Uh, I agree that we we should, you know... I think that Scotsmen are, and Baird, correct me if I'm I'm wrong on this, um, very um, free-spoken with their language. Hey, that's right. We like cursing and, and cussing and talking about cunts and all that business. So you can hear from, from Baird there that they have a sort of colorful vernacular. And I think that that would pose an interesting challenge for Mr. Mamet to, you know, he's very good at sort of the uh, the American uh, language of cursing. But can he handle the tongue of a Scotsman uh, that could really pose an interesting uh, challenge for him. So I want to ask you then about what is sort of the the contents of this play where we're seeing we're seeing this surgery, we're seeing these surgeries take place on stage in addition to sort of witnessing the sort of psychological toll that being at the center of this scandal takes on the surgeon himself is that is that basically the sort of crux of of what we're seeing here on stage? Yeah, I think for simplicity's sake, since I want there to be a lot of focus on the dialogue, the relationships, um, the drama of it, I think that there will be just a general emotional crescendo uh, as that tracks with the plot. So let me clarify what that means. So, yes, well, I think really only the pivotal surgery should take place flat out in the you know downstage center so everyone can see. And it has all the special effects and stuff. Maybe we can get creative with how we're doing the other surgeries just so that the actor himself doesn't feel like he's because you do have to. I mean, two minutes and 28 seconds is two minutes, 20 seconds. Anyway, you slice it. So um, 
you know, I wouldn't want to put McAvoy in that kind of pressure where it's like, I have to act. I have to solve vigorously. All of the tech has to go according to plan in two minutes and 28 seconds. Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? So I think we could get artistic about the first two surgeries, uh, the, the testicle removal and, and the, uh, and the amputation with the bonus, uh, neck, uh, cutting. Um, uh, so we can play with, I would leave that to production team as to how to ramp up each subsequent mistake. And then with the last one, we'll be really blatant with it and messy. Um, and yeah, the, the surgeries are interspersed with, um, I think, g- him giving speeches to the students in other non-surgical scenarios so that we get an insight into his professional philosophy. Um, I think there's scenes with him back home about the personal toll that it takes on his family, his fame and his notoriety. And then I think also um, the patient's perspective. I would love to see a scene or two um, that are just sort of in the waiting room for his uh, practice, because I think it's just that is there's so many fascinating perspectives in this mix for me. Um, first and foremost, Mr. Liston, but second, you know, second most are the people that continue to show up and sign up after they saw a man, you know, get his balls cut off or a man get his throat cut on accident um, as a, you know, a proposed benefit of his surgery. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd want this story, if we're looking at ordering it, I want it to start out with a very flashy surgery with very little context and also to acclimate our audience, sort of hit our audience in the face and the mouth with what the story is and how gritty and real it is. Um, and then we'll cut to something softer, maybe a home scene, maybe him giving a speech so we get to know the man himself, the man, the myth, and then cut back into the waiting room. And now we're learning about the bureaucracy. We're learning about all the moving parts and the paperwork and the you know obstacles to get to this very storied man. And then we rinse and repeat you know, that sort of cycle. Um, as we tell the story, as it gets increasingly uh, dramatic. So, um, I, I I am reminded of uh, a play that I my college did. If you'll indulge me in this oh, brief yes. tangent, um, and when I was in college, we did the uh, first ever production of an adaptation of the of the play Voitsek. Are you are you familiar yeah, the, with the, the tale one. of of Wojciech? Yes, an adaptation of Wojciech by Neil Labute, and it was set during the Civil War, uh, and it followed a like a regiment. Um, it was basically like the same story, just like in the Civil War. And and to transition between scenes, our director had the idea of having amputations take place wow. as the transitions between that scenes. Is confusing. So, Every time that it would go, uh, there would be like a big transition. We would see these doctors uh, just like sawing somebody's leg off and blood just spraying against the uh, this like glass, this glass window on stage. It was an extremely bloody show. Uh, I was not in it. I did not even audition for it, in fact. Uh, <laughs> but I did work uh, as a part of the um, uh, laundry crew so that I could get credit for um, oh, God. the uh, uh, costume shop class that I was taking at the time. So my role in the show was mostly just me uh, playing Final Fantasy IX backstage. Mm. But uh, uh, yeah, buckets and buckets of blood. 
in that show. And uh, that's basically what I'm imagining here, uh, since the entire set was set up to look like uh, a sort of like surgery room. Uh, where you had like the big metal table and, you know, you had like stains everywhere. It was very like a rusty, like creepy, gross look. So like, that's what I'm imagining. But like on that, we have uh, like a bunch of Scottish actors yelling at each other and maybe one woman character, but she's probably not named and she's mostly just kind of like a sexual object for the other characters to talk about um, how they'd like to to get a piece of that, um, you know, in tradition with Mamet's uh, most most of his work. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I'm imagining. Now, does that line up with with your sort of internal uh, uh, image of of the piece? Yeah, I wanted to sort of, yeah, I wanted to feel like kind of how I felt about old timey amputations, which is sort of like putting a ribbon on a turd really. So like, yeah, the uh, operating room is not cleanly except for the doctor and his gleaming instruments. I want the saws and everything that sort of have a character of their own as props um, of how they're, how they look and how they catch the light and how we do all that stuff. Um, And then, yeah, the state, the stage is sort of, I think it all takes place sort of in an operating room. He even gives speeches there. We do the, the family scenes at the center of the operating room. Maybe if we're feeling really artistic, all the spectators stay on the whole time and are still commenting or whatnot, uh, sort of meta theatrically. And we get the sense of like an examined life, um, even behind closed doors. Uh, But um, yeah, I think, I think sort of, the jubilance and the celebration and the riotousness of the medical theater, wherein the actual place that they're operating is actually like kind of pretty dangerous. And it had to be in real life for both an assistant and a patient to get sepsis simultaneously. Um, So yeah, I think that I want it to be true to the time um, as well as uh, have the artistic commentary of, of all the folks in the rafters sort of uh, throwing in their two cents here and then and ma- making it feel um, making it feel observed because I feel like Liston's life was first and foremost observed. And maybe we get uh, in terms of just like really pumping up the star power here, you know, we get like a, like a David Tennant and mm-hmm. uh, an Alan Cumming and uh, a, a, a Billy Connolly, yeah, you know, you get all these guys. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is just off the dome. This is purely off the dome. Uh, and, you know, get get all of them like uh, as the you know, because you got to have like just this raw, angry, masculine energy if you want it to truly be a mammoth piece. Now, uh, I don't know how good uh, William H Macy is at a Scottish accent. But he has been in a significant number of uh, uh, mammoth pieces, so he should probably work his way in there as well. I think. Yeah. Um, Baird looks like he's uh, he's he's passed out, so I, I don't know. Oh, it looks shit. Like he, he he yelled himself into unconsciousness. Oh so my god! I'm not sure uh, if he would approve that or not, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go over his head on this one and say we can we can approve that. Great. Um, so uh, overall, I mean, as long as we really get the blood and guts flying on this one, which it sounds like is going to be in- inevitable, 
Um, you know, even if we're like a little sparing on it and then like really hit them with like the yeah. Shamu splash show with like the, uh, the final one, we can really like rock the socks of some people, you know, this can be like, um, that 1984 where there was like a caution waiver or whatever yeah, you had I to sign going twice. in. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause it was like too intense. Like this is, this is, that's what we've got on our hands here is one of those. Yeah. I want to, I want the village voice to write an article headlined, uh, Sweeney, oh my God, was one of the uh, <laughs> <laughs> was one of the goals when I was adapting this. I was like, I can already see the critical headlines just splashing. Oh, yeah. Ben Brantley says two severed thumbs down, you know, some <laughs> shit like that. Too gaudy, yeah, for him. Um, and if it's too gaudy for Brent Brantley, it's just right for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm on board. I'm giving this the green light. I say this Fantastic. is a. Um, this is a a dish uh, worthy of eating with some um, haggis and um, some um, like a salmon, <laughs> salmon and <laughs> Scottish salmon. And that's okay. I I had salmon for the first time in Scotland, so I will always associate salmon with Scotland. Not a bad place um, to get some salmon. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, maybe some hairy coos. Um, and now I'm just listing Scottish things. Uh, and my list has ended. So uh, green lights all around. I Thank think you. David Mamet is going gonna, is gonna to knock it out of the park. I can't wait to hear. I can barely understand what people are saying in his regular plays. Yeah. So I think transitioning that to Scotland, where it's already kind of difficult to understand people, is really, really just going to be like a match made in heaven and something I can't wait to see. I think most reviews of it will be like, I'm not entirely sure what happened. And then I got sprayed the face with uh, red uh, corn syrup. Um, So that sounds like a winning combination to me. Any final thoughts on this piece? No, um, I'm just really excited for it. I'm excited for the premiere. I think that uh, it might be one of the few premieres where you get totally different vibes in the room before and after. You know what I mean? Um, where you're kind of like a Star Wars Episode One premiere where it's like, oh, my mm-hmm. God, there's a Star Wars coming out and everyone's congratulating you. And you're like, you're yeah, you're like, oh, this is wonderful. You're Hayden Christensen. You're like, oh, fantastic. I'm a star. Then at the end, <laughs> well, he, no wasn't one- in the, he wasn't in the first one. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, you, you, you'll, uh, you know, uh, insert anyone that was a victim of that series here. And then by the end of the movie, no one will talk to you. So afterward, you have to just find an um, Uber on your way on your own. Did you know Michael Jackson apparently petitioned for the role of Judge Binks? He like wanted to be Judge Binks. Uh, um, can you imagine like that. that universe? Um, man, what a world we could have lived in. Uh, he and George Lucas did have a working relationship. They were, they did do yeah, uh, Captain Cap- EO. Um, Captain EO, um, big fan of Captain EO. So, um, all right, moving on, uh, to my pitch, which is, uh, this is going to shock you, Chris, but it's uh, a little different. Um, so my pitch revolves around, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a layered piece. Okay. So you're going to have to go with me Meaning here. It's offensive. <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, maybe offensive to one person in particular. Um, So uh, in terms of the scandal that I'm adapting, uh, 
the I'm sure that most people are familiar with the historical figure of Mr. Aaron Burr, the gentleman uh, famous for uh, shooting uh, Alexander Hamilton in a duel, uh, fatally murdering him. So, uh, Which no one are- cared about before that musical, and everyone's like, "That's the most evil thing ever." Uh, yes, that made famous by the the musical Hamilton. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that Aaron Burr was arrested uh, later in life, uh, four years after shooting uh, Alexander Hamilton. In fact, on suspicions of treason, uh, they uh, believed that he was planning to. Um, take over Louisiana and parts of the Southern United States to annex into his own country. Uh, He was basically planning like a coup. Uh, He kind of lost his mind a little bit in the end of his life. He was eventually acquitted on lack of evidence. And then he kind of just like went into exile for the rest of his life. Um, So uh, historians have kind of argued about how much validity there is to this plan my piece is going to operate under the assumption that that was a hundred percent his goal. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but, and, and, and I was, I was working around, um, I was working around how to adapt that and I, and what playwright I would like to work with. And I fell into an idea that I, I very much ended up liking that has sort of multiple meta layers to it. So the piece will be called Burr, a new play by David Mamet by Charlie Kaufman. So what's going on here is that the play is about David Mamet writing a play about Aaron Burr annexing part of the United States in an attempted coup. So wow. the play will kind of be split between two metatextual layers. There will be the play that David Mamet is writing about Aaron Burr and also David Mamet writing that play about Aaron Burr. So let me uh, uh, read through my sort of <laughs> synopsis here. <clears throat> uh, David Mamet once the most respected name on Broadway, is feeling usurped by Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton and its overwhelming success. In a fit of jealousy, he seeks to outdo Miranda by writing Burr, the story of how Aaron Burr sought to overthrow the U.S. presence in in the Louisiana Territory and create his own nation. His play will follow a loudmouth Aaron Burr played by Al Pacino with oh. heavy, heavy assistance from the teleprompters. Oh, uh, yeah. As he curses like a sailor and grapples with his newfound legacy as the man who shot Alexander Hamilton. The dialogue will be nigh incomprehensible outside of swears and excessive misogyny. Swears. As. <laughs> As Mamet continues work on his play, he is visited by the spirit of Aaron Burr, also appearing in the form of Al Pacino, who begins, who begins to influence his mind. 
Mamet's grip on sanity is beginning to loosen. His personal relationships are crumbling. And the show comes to a head when he attends a party for Broadway's elite, where he bumps into Lin-Manuel Miranda himself, played by himself. Oh. Who is dazzling a crowd with his rapping ability. Egged on by Aaron Burr, who at this point in the show, his personality is beginning to merge with and warp Al Pacino, as well as the characters Al Pacino has played on screen. And he challenges, uh, David Mamet decides to challenge Lin-Manuel Miranda to a wrap-off. Where, mirroring the historical event, Lynn chooses to stand down and defer out of respect for Mamet, only for Mamet to absolutely wrap the socks off Lynn so hard that Lynn has a heart attack and dies. Mamet suddenly finds himself with a reputation as the man who killed Lin-Manuel Miranda in a rap duel and, driven further mad by this new reputation, decides that he is going to attempt to overthrow the state government of Louisiana and declare it Mammotland, his own country. During his uh, last stand against an onslaught of state troopers, oh. he is once again visited by the spirit of Aaron Burr, who reveals his true form. He was never Aaron Burr, nor was he Al Pacino, but he was the spirit of fading relevance, a ghastly apparition that appears to all great artists once their time in the spotlight is over, a force that all great men have refused to face, <laughs> a rem- <laughs> a rem- and, and <laughs> a reminder that they will never be the men that they thought they could be. The same spirit that at once appeared to Aaron Burr and drove him to madness. The play ends as David Bamett ballroom dances with Al Pacino as the state troopers storm the Capitol building in what becomes this beautiful ballet. And the whole end of the show is this big, uh, just striking dance number. So that's a basic overview of the show and and how it functioned. Let me talk a little bit about uh, the origins of this uh, uh, abstract idea. So I'm a big Charlie Kaufman fan. Um, Charlie Kaufman, uh, just in case the audience is like, who are you talking about? Is the writer of movies like he did um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He did uh, uh, Adaptation, which uh, this takes a lot of inspiration from, clearly. And uh, uh, things like Anomalisa, which was originally a play, which is uh, uh, how I feel like this counts. <laughs> You're um, one inroad into this pitch not being disqualified. <laughs> that's correct. Uh, Anomalisa was a play. He wrote it. Thus, he is a playwright. Uh, he also, re- his most recent movie was um, uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Um, I've heard good things about that. And so Charlie Kaufman, he likes to play a lot with form. He likes to do make his his stuff very metatextual and very referential. And so I kind of wanted to infuse that into this bizarre piece about David Mamet kind of grappling with 
his own sort of like fading relevance and his own sort of like ideas of toxic masculinity kind of being left behind as like young new stars kind of take over and his life kind of running parallel to Aaron Burr as these two pieces sort of start to converge and like the realities of the two worlds start to like coalesce and it just becomes this big wild piece that a lot of audiences are going to leave the theater kind of scratching their heads and being like can somebody explain this to me because I don't think I necessarily know uh, what just happened mm. um in terms of uh, casting, uh, I was thinking um, for Dave, obviously Al Pacino will be playing Al Pacino slash Aaron Burr slash um, the ghost of Al Pacino slash uh, the spirit of fading relevance. And Linman Mo Miranda will be playing himself. I feel like surely he must have a good enough sense of humor about himself to be willing to to hop in there. Um, and then for, for David Mamet, uh, initially I was thinking like a Clive Owen, but oh, then, nice. but then I was like, you know, it'd be kind of like, just add like yet another layer on all of this. Let's get Leslie Odom Jr. Let's get the man who originated the role of Aaron Burr on Broadway, uh, in Hamilton, just to like further make this whole thing to play David a- Mamet. Yeah, to play David Mamet, writing a show about Aaron Burr and uh, feeling kind of trapped in the shadow of Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it all kind of just comes full circle uh, with with that. Uh, so I open the floor to questions, thoughts, and analysis. I think um, the image of... Leslie Odom Jr. in maybe a Mamet getup, like we'd have to probably steer in uh, very hard into character design to make him look like David Mamet or suggest the Mamet connection and let us not forget that because I think that that's important and central to your story. Um, the um, And I'm not from any particular department. I just sort of <laughs> am talking like this uh, reminiscently. It's just, just a man who wandered in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is Noah from uh, from Pick a Bagel. Uh, I'm... Uh, I don't work there. I just was, I'm from, I walked over from Pick a Bagel. I heard there's something going on across the street, so I wandered in. Um, <clears throat> lock your doors and windows. It's New York. Um, but uh, the image of uh, Leslie Odom Jr. in a get up reminiscent of David Mamet, a man two to three feet shorter than him, uh, <laughs> rapping at a different uh, real life Lin Manuel Miranda to the point where Lin Manuel dies um on stage is it almost feels like a Suzanne Laurie Parks moment no it almost feels <laughs> like a top dog underdog the great whole of history sort of uh vibe there which i like i like that um ironically uh mamet may or the character of mamet may find himself in a more timely and relevant piece on accident uh that tells the story of his own irrelevancy. So that I really like that. That really bends my brain. Um, yeah, it's it's a really uh, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky. It's a it's a provocative piece you've pitched us tonight. Um, I mean, it's it's it 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 would go, every theater would MCC would probably workshop it and then put it up at. You know, some I don't know. Fucking Disney theatrical might put this up. I don't know what they're gonna do after the pandemic, but 
it's it's sellable. It's gonna go up. It's just uh, it's a real thinker. It's hard to sort of stamp any definitive. It's this. It's that. It it is a very like as promised. It is a it is a uh, a uh, it, it's a wonderfully vague piece. Thank you. Um, I'm nothing if not a provocateur. So uh, that is what I strive to do. Um, And yeah, I mean, I just wanted to create a piece that was uh, very like, um, you know, layered in that there'd be all these like symbols and there'd all these be, we'd have the opportunity to like break form a lot. You know, there would be scenes where we'd be seeing the David Mamet play and, uh, you know, and then we'd sort of jump into like this sort of greater reality around that. And, and, you know, there'd be a real opportunity there for a director to play with how we jump between those, those layers of reality. And, you know, maybe there'd be like an entire sequence of like, just everybody's like a puppet because, uh, you know, Charlie Kaufman is very, um, is very sort of a fan of playing with form and having characters appear in different different forms and different uh, settings and different mm. different styles all within the same piece um you know and 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 sort of ending things on this big sort of beautiful dance number that kind of symbolizes what i guess would be david bamet being gunned down by state troopers yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's a nice touch. It really is. It's uh, not every day you get to see that, for sure. I think would be one of the headlines. It's not every day you get to see that, says the village voice. Um, and you know, if if two years from now you see uh, at like the New York City Fringe Festival, you see Burr, a new play by David Mamet, by Charlie Kaufman, by Matthew Schott, on stage, uh, because I've just decided to take this idea and and adapt it myself then you can look back at this podcast and be like wow that was a good idea and uh i stand by all those ideas and uh as i read through this and as i talk through this idea i am thinking to myself i guess i could do this without the literal people appearing themselves um i'd have to find somebody who could do a good uh uh, al pacino but it's it's possible uh, you could also do it because it is um, as as mind fucky as it is, for lack of a better term. You could do this as a very manic one man show, and I would not hate to see that. That's a that's a that's a recommendation from it's Rebecca from Recommendations here. Hi, good to see you. <laughs> a one man show. A one man um, show, kind of like Alan Cummings' uh, uh, One Man Macbeth. In the bathtub, if you if you checked out that that was very very Boy, successful I, production. I feel like this is there's there's so many layers here that 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 might uh, be that might be one layer too many. Mm. Um, but uh, but I mean I guess I'm I'm always open to stuff that makes things more convoluted, and mm. that would certainly uh, accomplish that. Yeah, and uh, I I have a young lady here wheeling in in her office chair. You you could walk, Julia. Oh, hi. This is Julia from Juice, and I just have to say, how? Tell us more about the scandal piece of this. Tell us how we're going to feel scandalized by this. How are we going to feel um, like you're really sticking it to the man? So we're gonna have you know scandals on scandals here because not only do we see the attempted coup of the United States government done uh, sort of incompetently, which 
if there's something more prescient and more relevant than that, I don't know what it is since we are sort of witnessing an incompetent coup at this very moment. So that mm-hmm. in and of itself, we've got that sort of modern relevance. We've got that scandalous element. On top of that, we also have, uh, you know, we've got we've got a a sort of these figures, these titans of Broadway. Mm. These, you know, your David Mamet, your Lin Manuel Miranda, being satirized in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Um, so you know, here we have these these sacrosanct, uh, uh, these people that are sort of above critique. Uh, being taken down a peg, if you will, in addition to the spirit of Al Pacino. Um, so you know you're 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 getting you're getting that scandal there, mm-hmm. and then you've of course got the scandal on top of the scandals, which is the scandal of creating a play which will be difficult to truly understand. So mm. I feel like. Scandals on scandals on scandals. I feel like this is a scandal sandwich. This is the Big Mac of scandals. It's kind of like a galetta, like a layered, a very thinly layered crepe cake where you're getting a little bite here, then the next layer, another flavor, new bite, another flavor, new bite. And each layer by itself is not necessarily of a, a, a whole, you know, meal, but it all combines in this symphony of of uh, of juicy, gossipy feeling and sensation, which I think I, I think that foots the bill. I think that I'm excited to see it. I I think that a great contingency of this is that you get one of the names doesn't don't have to get Pacine and Manuel Miranda, you know. But if you could just get one of them. Uh, you know, even if it's pre-recorded, I don't know how you do it. But if you could just get one of them, I think it would make all the difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you got to have the star power, you know. And I mean, having these people's names up on the marquee, I think will do a lot. But uh, uh, I think I think we can get Pacino. Surely, I mean, what else is he doing? Um, you know, he's he, know. even even though his time is so clearly behind him on stage, he's very insistent on returning to a form which he uh, uh, has a, a difficult time returning to. Yeah. So um, let me ask then, does this get the green light? Am I getting the green light on this one? Yeah, no, it, get, it gets a green light. Um, it gets the green light. Uh, I think that marketing's nodding. You know, the interns are excited. They're, they have a lot of ideas for the playbill. They have a lot of ideas for the marquee. Since it already in the title has about three or four um, luminaries names as part of the title. So um, I think it's going to be nice and nice and punchy. I think in a post-pandemic to a... a uh, abstract approach to scandal may be the best way to hold and get people's attention in a world where, you know, scandal has become so mundane and and literal. Yes, thank you. I feel like um, scandals are our daily existence now and we're a little numb to them. So I'm going to have to cram as many as I can into one uh, experience in order to really make it memorable. So... I want to talk about the uh, similarities between our pieces because I feel like, you know, we both we both uh, were drawn to Mammoth and I don't know why that is. Uh, and I want to I want to scrutinize that for for a brief moment here before we wrap things up. So what what was it that drew you to Mammoth? Why Mammoth? Um, I felt like. I feel like Mammoth pieces. 
like you could summarize a lot of the subtext to be like, well, what the fuck is this? Which, uh, you know, when they're introduced to a new complication. And I feel like that's sort of what you want to say when you're encountering scandals. Just often scandals often happen to people of such high social standing that they're not allowed to say those things. And so if you're watching The Crown or something and people delight in the free song, the subtextual sort of what the fuck is this? I wanted to bring that to the surface. I wanted it to sort of slap you in the face a little bit. And I think it's something that we don't get that I think really did happen. I think that's how people did talk back then when these things were brought to light. And we sort of beautify that in our retellings of them and our period pieces. So I'd be refreshed with an Aaron Burr who's like, well, what the fuck is this, Hamilton? What the fuck are you up to? There's some shady ass bullshit you pulled back there in Congress. Uh, similarly, with uh, with a doctor who had just murdered three people, um, I think he would give us a C word. I think he would cry fuck to the heavens. I think that there would be people in the in the balconies that wouldn't just swoon and go, oh, you know, oh, my stars, bless my buttons. You know, I think the gritty, punchy, um, reactionary nature of Mamet's characters serves a person reacting to a very annoying and inconvenient situation well. So I think that's why he fits scandals well. Yeah, I think that um, similarly, it was like when I was thinking of of plays and I was like, okay, we're going to do it in the style of somebody that is no- notable for being a playwright. My immediate thought was was David Mamet. I don't know why. I just think when I think like straight play specifically, because that was the one limitation we put on ourselves, was like make it a straight play. Immediately my brain went to David Mamet because I think that for me, the sort of quintessential state straight play that I think of is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, a play that when I read it in college, was completely indecipherable to me. I mean, I could not make her the heads or tails of it. I think I understood it better when I watched the movie. But even then, I mean, there's just like a lot of double talk and it's just kind of overall difficult to really understand what people are talking about. So um, I... Uh, I think there's something just about the way he writes and the way like it's almost like when you boil down theater to its most basic elements, it's just a bunch of people yelling at each other. And that's like (laughs) what he does best. Yeah. So um, that's probably why we were both kind of drawn there. Um, So uh, thank you so much, Chris, for for joining me once again here in the Adaptation Lounge to what is is going to go down as one of our... um, uh, strangest episodes just in terms of like I feel like last week we were talking about ice cream and all lost our minds and this week it was uh, almost borderline somber reflection on some yeah. uh, some real uh, interesting things maybe that has something to do with the Christmas season and uh, how we're all feeling about that uh, but uh, you know this this is being released a couple of days before Christmas so um, I think in honor of that I want to add to the adaptation lounge just like a little like a little baby Christmas tree just like a little oh, like a little nice. guy you know that's just nice. like a little a, a little guy there's no uh, there's no scandalous nature about it it's just a good old good old straightforward tree one of the ornaments is pornographic ah um, I was hoping you're gonna hidden, say that it's hidden amongst the and maybe uh, ornaments. Of, uh, yeah maybe of uh, a one man and one woman both of them famous so that it's feels equidistant to folks. They don't feel like we're picking you know, on anyone, but it's why don't we say? Why don't we say the ornaments on the tree are those uh, like royal family naked photos that yes. uh, that they found in that bank heist in the 70s? Wait, um, what? If you, if you, there was like a... 
It was like a a bank heist in the seventies where they found a bunch of like uh, they emptied out all the security deposit boxes and they found like a bunch of naked photos of royals uh, oh and the British God. family. Um, this yeah, there was a movie about it. I think it was called The Bank Job with uh, um, uh, Jason Statham. It was an interesting story. Um, so that'll be the the Christmas tree ornaments. Um, so I think, I think, uh, I think in honor of the season, I think what we're going to do here at the adaptation game is we are going to, this is going to be our last episode for 2020. Um, that basically just means we're going to be taking one week off. Um, (laughs) so, uh, enjoy, enjoy the end of 2020. Enjoy the end of this stupid year. Um, you know, whatever, whatever brings you joy, whether you celebrate holidays or not, I hope you do that. And I hope you take the time to just kind of reflect on how far you've come because you made it. Whoever you are listening to this show, you made it to the end of 2020. And there are a lot of people who can't say that, yeah. um, for one reason or another. So, um, you know, pat yourself on the back and, and, and let yourself take a little bit of a victory lap here in the last couple of weeks of December, because, you know, it's not it's not over, but we're doing a good job. So, well, we're we're making it at least. So, pat yourself on the back, and uh, Chris, I love you, and um, let's uh, let's go into twenty twenty one strong. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Goodbye. This is the end. <laughs>